I'm Andrea Donsky, your host for the Morphous from Menopause podcast. I want to welcome you to our show and thank you so much for listening. Today's show is brought to you by Naturally Savvy, our other podcast that helps to educate you on living a healthier lifestyle at all ages. On today's show, I want to welcome Dr. Blanca Lizaola Mayo. She's a medical doctor, assistant professor of medicine, board certified internist, current gastroenterology and transplant hepatology fellow at the Mayo Clinic and the co-founder of SOS Rehydrate. She's passionate about non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. I'm so happy to have her on the show. Now, here's Dr. Blanca. Welcome to the show, Dr. Blanca. I am so happy to have you here today. Hi, Andra. Thank you so much for inviting me. Okay, I, let's start from the beginning. What is a fatty liver? Because I think it would be great to define it. And then I have so many questions for you. Sure. So fatty liver, as we describe it, is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. That stands for NAFLD. That's how we call it. So it's a chronic disease that is characterized by accumulation of triglycerides, that it's a type of lipid cells into your liver. So we call this hepatic esteatosis, which means fat in your liver, basically. Now, how does it happen? Like, I know that, you know, so it's non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Now, there are, I'm, I'm guessing because it's saying non-alcoholic, we know that alcohol is not good for the liver. So we can kind of, you know, you can give us a little bit of a definition of that. But how does it happen when we're, let's say, not drinking alcohol or not a lot of it? Mm -hmm. So the reason why we call it non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is because fatty liver has a lot of characteristics that are very similar to patients that drink alcohol, actually. So when we take, for example, a liver biopsy, we can see changes that are very similar in both diseases. So when we're working up a patient, uh, one of the first things that we ask is if the patient drinks alcohol or not, basically. Okay. And then if they say they don't, or let's say they have one or two glasses a week, that would still characterize them as NAFLD. That's correct. So okay. alcohol can definitely worsen uh, hepatic esteatosis or fatty liver, uh, you know, fat deposition into the liver. However, in many patients, it can be just mainly fatty liver. In others, it's a combination from both. But we do know that alcohol consumption actually can exacerbate, you know, uh, lipid deposition into the liver. Now, for those who are listening and might think, you know, I've, I've heard of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or NAFLD, but I'm not really sure how I would even know if I have it. How would they, what blood tests would help them determine that? Great question, Andrea. So basically, normally in clinic, what we see and, you know, when we get referrals from the to the liver clinic is patients that have mild elevation of liver enzymes, for example. Normally, you know, they're going to their primary care physician and they're checking their laboratory workup and then they notice, you know, oh, you have mild elevation of your liver enzymes. We're just going to watch it. And then again, you keep seeing that repetitive pattern. So that's when we get, you know, these referrals to the liver clinic. When you say, okay, there's elevation of the liver enzymes. We're seeing patients, you know, let's say obesity, being overweight and have other, you know, comorbidities like, for example, diabetes, high blood pressure or hyperlipidemia, which means high cholesterol, high triglycerides. Right. Okay. So it's the, it's AST and ALT. Is that what it is on the, so if somebody's going to their doctor, there's, they're asking for these blood tests. Are those the two that we're checking? That's correct. So we check okay. ALT and AST. Uh, that are called transaminases of the liver. And uh, the ones that are telling us, you know, if there's inflammation or something going on with the liver, basically. So Blanca, as we get into perimenopause and menopause, many of us are more prone to NAFLD. How come? So 
Uh, Andra, let me explain you first what, what's the difference between NAFOLD and how it's subdivided. So NAFOLD, as I already explained, is the accumulation of fat in your liver. However, this disease is subdivided into NAFOLD and NASH. So NASH stands for non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, meaning that there's inflammation of the liver cells. Why is this important? Around 20% of the patients with NAFOLD will progress to NASH as an inflammation of the liver. From these patients, 40% will progress to fibrosis. Okay. And from the patients with fibrosis, 20% will advance to cirrhosis or end-stage liver disease. Why is this important in patients with menopause? So before menopause, we know that fatty liver disease is actually more prevalent in men. There's a lot of conflicting data around this. However, we do know now that estrogen in women is actually a, uh, it's a protective hormone for fatty liver disease and many other you know, cardiovascular diseases. So when patients approach uh, menopause, we have seen a very increased, you know, uh, incidence and prevalence of fatty liver disease in women. And not only this, uh, also in mortality, unfortunately. Wow. In mortality. So, and is that because they're, they're, they're progressing to the cirrhosis stage or is there another reason for that? Yes. Number one, they are progressing to the cirrhosis or end-stage liver disease stage. And actually something that is pretty amazing is how nowadays uh, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, NASH, is the number one cause of liver transplantation in patients, wow. in postmenopausal women, basically. Wow. So, so I just want to go back for one second, just so I can understand and make sure that everyone's listening understands as well. So as we get older and specifically because we're at Morphis here, we're talking about Morphis, we're talking about perimenopause and menopause. We are more prone to NAFL, to the, to getting, to having those higher liver enzymes. So ladies, if you're going, when you're going to the doctor, please ask to have your ALT and your AST checked. Now, if they come back and they're elevated, that's when Blanca, you're suggesting, and we're going to get into how ways that we can help to either minimize it or to reverse it. But once you know that you have those high liver enzymes, that's when we know we need to take very good care of our bodies and do everything we can to help them de- to go back to the way they were before. So Blanca, so to understand, so we, you know, as we get older, we're having that fatty liver. What are the causes? So I know that you said, obviously going into perimenopause and menopause, lower estrogen. Is there anything that we're doing from a diet perspective or lifestyle perspective that we may need to change as soon as we hear that those enzymes are creeping up? Great questions. And actually, I'm very passionate about prevention, right? So okay. that that's something that we need to take into account. So if you have, if you, for example, me as a woman, I know that I'm overweight, that I have other comorbidities like, let's say, diabetes or high blood pressure, or my cholesterol levels have been high. There are things that I need to kind of consider because the other thing that I want to stress, Andrea, is that you can actually have normal liver enzymes and already have, you know, a little bit of fatty liver. So you want to make sure that you are, if you know that you are overweight, you want to make sure that you kind of start making small changes in your life, you know, to make sure that you stay as healthy as possible. So some of the things that I would stress that are very important and not only for fatty liver, you know, in general, for your heart, for your like, you know, kidneys, et cetera, what you want to make sure that you, you, you exercise what we recommend, you know, from a fatty liver perspective is to work, uh, work out around 150 minutes per week. You want to make sure to, that you follow a healthy diet and the diet that has, you know, shown to be the best for fatty liver is a Mediterranean diet. 
you want to stay awake from alcohol, which is very important. Uh, and you also, believe it or not, coffee, it's great <laughs> as well. So what, what some studies have shown that actually if you drink around three cups of coffee per day can keep the hepatologist away, meaning that, you know, <laughs> it's funny. protective for the liver. That's interesting. And do you think it's the caffeine in the coffee or do you think it's actually substances like the polyphenols that are in the coffee itself? That's correct. It's mainly the polyphenols. I mean, again, this is, you know, ongoing research, but, mm -hmm. you know, it's all the anti-inflammatory, antioxidant substances that coffee provides. And I love that you talked about the Mediterranean diet. We do have links to other an interview that we did with Stephen, Dr. Stephen Masley about um, the Mediterranean diet. So we're going to link to that below, but I love that you're talking about that. So, and it's so related to lifestyle and to the food that we're eating. So eating those anti-inflammatory foods can really make a difference to help bring down the inflammation in our liver. And that, I just want to be clear that that's what you're saying and making sure that we're avoiding pro-inflammatory foods and beverages, right? Correct. And what you want to okay. do is lose around 9% of your weight. So okay. if you, you know, once you get diagnosed with fatty liver, I think the process, and that's something that I always tell my patients, like you want to make sure that you do take baby steps because you, if from one day to another one, you want to change your total, you know, life, that's not going to work for you. You want to make sure that you lose the weight steadily. And then you, you maintain that weight. That's a healthy way, you know, approaching this. I love that you're saying that because I mean, we, I, we believe in baby steps because otherwise it becomes so overwhelming. And when we're in perimenopause and menopause, we already feel like the world is so much more overwhelming than it was before. So I love that you're even talking about baby steps. Now you're mentioning that in order to help with NAFLD or NAFLD is to lose a percentage of our body fat. So somebody who, let's say, carries a little bit more extra weight, which many of us do in menopause. But what if somebody doesn't have a lot of extra weight, but they still have high liver enzymes? What In that case, what could they do? So first, we now know that there's something called lean NAFL or lean NASH, basically in patients like, you know, lean patients that still have like elevation of the liver enzymes. So more importantly, first of all, you need to make sure that there are not other causes, you know, other reasons why these patients have elevated liver enzymes. So right. normally, you know, as part of the work of a fatty liver disease, we first, you know, start with lifestyle modifications. We obviously get some imaging of the abdomen to assess, you know, the, the amount of fat deposition in the liver. And, you know, after three to six months, if the liver enzymes remain elevated, we need to change for change, like check for other causes, you know, as hepatitis, autoimmune diseases, mm. and other metabolic disorders that can affect and increase the liver enzymes. Interesting. Okay. Uh, another thing that I want to highlight is that it's also what we are taking or consuming, right? So it's very important to take a very thorough um past medical history, make sure that patients, you know, what medications are they taking? If they're taking, you know, any, any herbal tea supplements, et cetera, all of that can definitely contribute to, to elevation of liver enzymes. Okay. That's really interesting. And you alluded to before you were saying that somebody can still have a fatty liver, even if they don't have high liver enzymes. Talk about that. Correct. So the, the elevation of liver enzymes can be dynamic, right? So the liver can be, you know, kind of shedding this liver enzymes and then coming back to normal. So I think what it's more important is prevention. So I wouldn't, you know, put all the, my eggs in one basket saying, meaning that if I have a patient that it's obese that has, you know, 
other comorbidities that I have, I have mentioned before, high blood pressure, you know, high cholesterol, et cetera. I want that patient to be aware that there are potential implications into the liver, right? So mm-hmm. I don't want to trust 100% the liver enzymes. I just want to make sure that the patient is exercising, is following a, a, um, a regular diet. And as we said, Mediterranean diet is the best for this. Yeah, I love, I'm a big fan of the Mediterranean diet. <laughs> Any thoughts on keto diet or some of the other diets that are out there and their effect on the liver when it comes to what you're seeing in the operating room? Yeah, so all the diets work as long as you maintain the weight, right? What happens mm-hmm. with many diets is that you lose the weight and then you have that rebound, which bounce back up. And that actually has shown that actually has worse, it's worse for the liver. Uh, you know, as soon as you lose the weight and then you gain back all those pounds, you know, in a very short period of time can definitely cause worsening like fatty liver. So keto diet and I, you know, many of this paleo diet, et cetera, many of this have been compared to the Mediterranean diet. Mm -hmm. And the one that has shown, you know, the, the biggest benefit is Mediterranean diet. What, what effect does blood sugar have on the liver? Oh, that's, that's actually huge. It's okay. not only diabetes, it's insulin resistance. And insulin res- the resistance is mainly driven as well by obesity, right? So you have mm. your cells, the, all those fatty cells that may worsen the, the in- resistance to insulin. How normally it works, and I don't want to get too molecular here, but you do need insulin to get all that glucose into your cells. But basically with all these fatty, fatty cells, what happens is that your body needs to produce more insulin to be able to pu- get that glucose into your cells, making meaning that your pancreas starts working harder and there's a point where it just gives up and that's when you develop diabetes. Um, this is part of all the metabolic syndrome that I'm sure that you heard about, but uh, it's a very important thing. And it's something that we recommend for our patients that are diabetic or have, you know, insulin resistance, for example, in premenopausal women with PCOS, these patients are prone to develop uh, insulin resistance. Yeah, I had PCOS for so many years of my life, I had trouble getting pregnant. And as I got into menopause, I was I was pretty sure that I had insulin resistance. And then what I started to do was, and I'm a nutritionist. So for me, this is my life in terms of my research and my passion. And I actually got a CGM, a continuous glucose monitor. And Hmm. someone had recommended that I get one. And I, can I tell you, Dr. Blanca, like it has changed my life in the sense of now I understand blood sugar and I understand what it does to our moods. I understand what it does for weight. So it is such a crucial thing. Now, not, you know, if, if you're not diabetic, you may not be able to access it, but even accessing meters like a keto mojo, they have a, this, mm-hmm. this meter that you could test your blood and it can check for ketones as well as blood glucose. So I highly recommend, we'll put a link to that below. I highly recommend understanding blood sugar. So we understand that, you know, blood sugar, we think automatically pancreas, but what is the exact connection that it has on the liver itself? High glucose uh, and, you know, insulin resistance, as as we discussed, is part of the metabolic syndrome. So it's also a point where your liver starts producing actually more fat de novo in the liver and that fat, it's going to get stored into your into your liver. Another important thing that I haven't mentioned is the amount of fructose high corn syrup, which we are all aware of that if you start reading all the labels from like 90, 99% of what we eat every day, like crackers, like things that you could even imagine, they have high corn fructose, like syrup, which is 
terrible for your body and it's specifically very bad for your liver. So why? Because all that high fructose like corn syrup that we ingest goes directly into your liver and it just gets stored in there and it contributes like to your, you know, to the fatty liver as well. We talk a lot about reading labels and understanding what's in our food and what we're eating and additives obviously are a big one. So I run a company also called Naturally Savvy and at Naturally Savvy, that's been for the past 15 years, really understanding what we're putting in and high fructose corn syrup. Can I tell you, I'm so happy you just mentioned it because it is so bad for us. It contributes to obesity. It contributes to heart disease. It contributes to insulin resistance, what you were just talking about. But also when our body is eating all of these additives that our body doesn't know what to do with, it's going to cause an issue with our bodies. And I'm happy that you mentioned the liver in particular. So thank you for bringing that up. And as we're ladies, as we're in menopause, it's really, really important that we understand food labels and we understand what we're eating and what we're putting in our body because it's it's huge. Dr. Blanca, you mentioned before about diet, so keto diet, Mediterranean. I want to ask you a question about fats because a lot of women, as we get into perimenopause and menopause, we gain weight and it's not our fault. It's our hormones that are going up and down, especially in the 10 years prior in perimenopause. And then once we're in menopause, it's a big issue for so many of us. And we get, some of us get confused with the type of fats we should be eating, thinking that we should be cutting calories, eating less or eating less fat. What is your opinion as, as a doctor who specializes in fatty liver is good fat like coconut oil or olive oil or avocado oil going to give us or make our liver fatty? No. So the the good fats, you know, the ones that you obtain from salmon or olive oil or avocado are, are actually going to protect you, not only, you know, from a liver perspective, but especially from a cardiovascular, you know, yeah. point of view, it will definitely benefit you. You want to stay away from fried food, processed foods, right? So as you said, Andrea, like, you know, it has taken me many, many years to really understand and read those labels properly, like properly, right? Because you have all this information, which is not easy to digest for sure. Um, It takes time. And as you said, you know, talking about the glucose monitor, maybe we both ate, let's say, a piece of whole wheat bread, for example, your body is going to respond differently than my body, right? So I'm not saying, you know, that both of us are going to have, you know, a glucose peak of, let's say, 120. Maybe in your case, it's going to be 100. And in my case, it's going to be, I don't know, 150. So that's also, also very important. What I always tell my patients is keep it simple, baby steps, and make sure that you understand and learn how to read your body because everybody's different. Such a good point. Now let's go back to the blood test for a second. So you were saying before that's a made, that's a monitor, and also you can get ultrasounds, imaging. I'm guessing you're referring to ultrasounds when you talk when you talk about imaging. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it comes back and the doctor says, okay, your AST, your ALT, these are for people who have the markers. They say your ALT or AST is a little bit elevated. We did the ultrasound. We see there's a little bit of fatty liver. What at what point should it be like? Obviously, as soon as you hear that those liver enzymes are elevated, that you should absolutely take control and even beforehand. But at Mm -hmm. what point for some people who might be listening right now and it came back, their doctor's like, yeah, they're borderline, they're a little bit elevated. What advice would you have for them? What I would say is monitor them, right? You you really want to give your patients a chance to in some way prove themselves, right? Uh, Before you start with more invasive kind of diagnosis, et cetera, 
if you are really suspecting that the patient has fatty liver and before you refer the patient to a liver clinic, specifically a hepatology clinic, uh, you want to start, as you said, with uh, those lifestyle modifications. After that, if, you know, in a period of three to six months, the patient has, has you know, continues to uh, gain weight or has not like lost any weight, that's when you consider referring the patient number one to a liver specialist and also consider, you know, other measures like, for example, bariatric surgery, you know, nutritionist and things like that. I will probably start with a nutritionist since day mm -hmm. one, because as I said, you know, there's so much information out there that gets really confusing. Uh, you want to have someone that is really going to help you, number one, understand your body and number two, understand what you should really be eating. Right. So again, it sounds to me that a lot of it, obviously, exactly what we should be eating and obviously connected to weight. So, and is that where the, where the research is, Dr. Blanca? Like really that when you think of NAFLD, you think, or fatty liver, you think like you're, you're, you see people who are on your operating table that a lot of it has, is tied into obesity. Yes. So interesting. Research, research, you know, fatty liver right now, it's a super hot, hot topic for hepatologists and, you know, in general for cardiologists, etc. Uh, why? Because as I said, you know, nowadays is there's a huge global epidemic, you know, of obesity. Uh, we're seeing all these patients now, uh, you know, requiring liver transplants. 10 years ago, the number one cause of liver transplantation was hepatitis C. However, now we, we found the cure for hepatitis C, which is amazing. But now we're dealing with fatty livers, obesity, alcohol consumption, which is, you know, unfortunately a, a big, big, big burden, you know, nowadays. You know, you're talking about alcohol and I just want to clear something up because a lot of women, especially, you know, the last year, what it's been with everything that's going on and we're at home, a lot of, a lot of us have been turning to drinking an alcoholic beverage, whether that's a glass of wine before bed or something that's going to kind of, that's going to help us relax or make us feel a little bit better. Is there a safe limit of drinking alcohol? Because I, and I want to be clear on this because I feel that, you know, a lot of us might say, okay, I'm going to have my glass of wine and it's a thing to do, but I want to understand it from the perspective of our liver. Is there a safe limit? Can we have one glass of wine a day? Is that going to be okay for us? So we, we do know that alcohol, you know, affects the liver in general. So in patients and in this, you know, from this perspective, I'm, I'm pretty strict. You know, if I have a patient with elevated liver enzymes, I would say do not drink. Is it the safest thing that you can do? Dr. Blanca, as a nutritionist, I talk a lot about helping our body detox naturally by drinking lemon water or doing certain things like dry skin brushing that helps our body to detox the way our body is beautifully designed. Is there anything that we can do to help our liver naturally detox, knowing that it's the master detox organ in the body? Yes. I mean, obviously I'm biased, but I, I think that the liver is the most amazing organ because as you said, like it literally clears all the toxins, yeah. you know, from the body. Uh, the best way that you can help your liver is by staying properly hydrating, hydrated, you know, avoiding any type of toxins that we already talked about, especially yeah. alcohol. Uh, every time that you want to take any type of medication or someone recommends, you know, taking any other supplements, et cetera, you want to make sure that you run this by your physician, right? You want to make sure that you, uh, that this is not a potential you know, toxic substance for your liver. Uh, and I already mentioned, you know, coffee is actually, it's actually has shown to be very good for your liver. Um, just keeping a healthy diet, like keep it, keep it simple, uh, follow a, you know, a balanced diet and drink water and exercise. 
Dr. Blanca, in all of your years of experience in working with livers, is there anything that ever shocked you or you were like, wow, like I learned something new today? I think one of the most um, amazing things and one of the most gratifying things for me is to see how patients improve. That's, mm-hmm. that's one of my biggest motivations. And that's the reason what I love and I'm passionate about what I do, because, you know, I have all this like committed patients are very motivated to see that improvement, you know, in their liver enzymes or their general health. So the fact that, uh, you know, I can see how novel the body is and how easy in some way sometimes is, you know, to revert all this damage. That's what amazes me. Um, as part of my, my training as a transplant hepatologist, I had the fortune to see actually several liver liver transplants. And is it is just amazing to see how we can damage organs, you know, in such a big way, specifically the liver. Um, so that, that, that has been something that has been shocking for me. And many times, you know, after the transplant, we, we provide pictures to our patients of their old livers and they're like, wow, this is, you know, it's kind of shocking for them as well. Wow. And I know that you were mentioning all the things that can damage it, but um, there are other things as well, like pollution and medications, like there, I mean, everything that we're doing, right. Because it's that master organ or detox organ in our body, everything filters through the liver, right? Correct. Everything. So, you know, the blood vessels that kind of the blood vessels from the bowel, the, the, mm-hmm. the bowel is the one that absorbs all the nutrients and metabolizes the food, et cetera. So they directly go into the liver. So it's, you know, first pass in there. So everything goes directly into the liver and, and it's working 24 seven, just like the, the heart and our brains, et cetera. But mm-hmm. yeah, the liver has definitely a, a hard, a very hard job there. <laughs> A hard job for sure. And I, you know, when I think about the liver and you talked about it, uh, you you alluded to it a minute ago is that it's, it's an organ that can regenerate itself. And it's such a beautiful, beautiful organ. Can you talk just a little bit more about the fact that it can regenerate itself? That's, that's just shocking. I mean, and I'm still amazed about that. Uh, The liver is one of the only organs that can actually regenerate. That's the reason why we can actually transplant, you know, half of the liver to patients. So when we have living donors, we can, we can keep part of the, you know, donor's liver and that liver will regenerate in the donor and in the recipient. Um, We can revert uh, fibrosis to certain stage which is also amazing. We, we had like really amazing success stories where, uh, you know, we have patients with fatty livers, et cetera, and we have documentation by imaging or by uh, something called transient elastography that basically measures the fibrosis and the fat deposition in your liver through a spe- like special machine. And after, you know, diet and lifestyle modifications, et cetera, we can see that change, you know, how your liver kind of becomes normal again, which is just great. That is fascinating. Wow. What an, what an incredible organ. It's like, and I love hearing that. And I love hearing that there's hope and that, you know, you, we can help our liver can be regenerated and it can be helped. Dr. Blanca, is there anything that you would love to share that we didn't touch on today that you think would be beneficial for our audience who are in perimenopause and menopause? Thank you, Andrea. So I, I will, well, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me. Like this, this, this was great. Um, I will say, you know, don't get discouraged. Keep it simple. As I said before, you know, step by step, like baby steps. And that's how I always 
you know, what I always tell my patients, like it's a teamwork. I don't think mm-hmm. that, you know, everything is on the patient, that that's the reason why us as physicians, you know, we, we, we're here to help. Right. So I love having this kind of teamwork relation with my patients and we're cheering up, you know, and getting sad together because, you know, in three months, oh, they didn't come down. Oh, you didn't lose weight, but now you lost weight and you're feeling better. Uh, don't fall into this vicious cycle where, you know, you get discouraged and you, you feel tired. You're like, oh, I don't want to go and walk today. I'm kind of not feeling well. Exercise will make you feel better in general. You know, when you're in your couch and you're like, oh my God, I need to go out and work out. And that happens to me all the time as well. You know, like I, I come back home from, you know, from, from, from the hospital and I'm exhausted, but then I remember, okay, I need to get up. I need to go and walk mm-hmm. my dog. And I, I know that afterwards I'm going to feel better. Keep it simple, you know, make sure that you make good choices regarding what you're eating, drink your water, stay hydrated, and definitely, uh, yeah, be positive in general. Well, just one last question before we go, talk a little bit about hydration and the importance for the liver. Yeah, hydration is, is in some way very underestimated. So one of the first signs, you know, of dehydration is actually headaches and fatigue as simple as that. So many times we have, you know, this lingering headache that we don't know what's going on. You're like, oh, maybe I'm getting a cold, maybe. And it comes down to simply, you know, realizing that you're dehydrated. Um, One of the best ways to really assess your hydration is through the color of your urine, believe it or not. So if you see that your urine is really dark yellow, you know that you're dehydrated. So make sure that you to drink enough water. The only thing that is gonna make you retain water is actually salt. in patients are healthy in general, you know, as long as you keep a balanced diet, you are okay. However, make sure to have a water bottle. You know, I don't know if you've seen those huge water bottles that have like kind of encouraging messages. And I see that all the time, you know, in my nurses, which is great because what happens many days, you know, on a daily basis when we're working is that we forget to drink water. So be aware of that as well. Uh, Water is not only related, you know, with, with your liver health, it's in general, you know, it will increase your, your blood volume. It will make sure that you provide enough oxygen and nutrients to your body. Um, it's just going to make you feel better. Remember that 60% of your body is made out of water. So that's how important it is. And it'll help the liver do its job. So the, well, not help the liver do its job, but when the, when the liver does its job, it'll help the colon push everything out, right? So everything is Correct. working in conjunction with each other. Dr. Blanca, Correct. thank you so much for spending time with us today and for sharing your knowledge. And thank you for what you do. Thank you, Andrea. It, it's a pleasure. I, I, I really enjoyed it. Me too. I love the fact that Dr. Blanca reinforced the importance of healthy living, especially during perimenopause and menopause, making sure that we're eating a healthy diet, making sure we're exercising, making sure that we're not drinking too much, making sure we're not smoking and avoiding additives like high fructose corn syrup that we know can be harmful to our liver. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it because the more you share shows you care. If you have any comments, be sure to leave them in the comments section below and please give us a big thumbs up. I really appreciate you tuning in and we'll see you next time.